It was May 6th, 2016, Weirton Police Department in West Virginia received a call for domestic violence at about 2.06 in the morning. A rookie officer, been on the force less than a year, responded, arrived at the scene, uh, overshot the address, had to back up to it because he was new in the area, new on the job, uh, gets out of his car and finds uh, a man in the driveway waving his gun, yelling, saying he's going to shoot his family, going to shoot the police officer. Um, this police officer takes out his own firearm and uh, rests his arm on the, the roof of the car, aiming it at the person, and then does nothing. Now, depending on who you believe here, he says that he was trying to de-escalate the situation, and that he was trying to use less than lethal force, basically talk to the person and de-escalate the situation. Uh, other witnesses described the police officer as freezing, so he just froze, panicked under the circumstance, and several minutes went by with the man with the gun waving it around and threatening to shoot people and the officer standing there. Other officers arrived a few minutes later, get out of their car, and were stunned to see a man holding a firearm, pointing it at a police officer, and nothing happening. And the other officers shot and killed the guy in the driveway. A few days later, the police investigated this and did something unusual in the world of police shootings. They fired the first officer on the scene for not shooting. And they fired him for a failure to do his job, as they put it. Uh, and in the investigation, the police officer said, I just don't know if I could have lived with myself if I had shot that man. To which the police chief said, then you shouldn't be a police officer. Normally, when you think of somebody getting fired for misconduct, it's because of something that he has done wrong, something that he did incorrectly. In this instance, he was fired, you could say, for sin of omission. And that's what I look, want to look at this morning. There's a category in theology, not just of sins of commission, sins that you do, but another category called sins of omission. I want to give you an outline to understand that, understanding sins of omission. Let me give you the verse that describes this most effectively, James 4, verse 17, where James writes, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. This verse really gets at the horrible nature of what sin is. And I'm telling you, we, in our culture, not just our culture, probably every culture, but I'm aware of it in our culture, downgrade sin. We downgrade the seriousness with which we look at sin, the way we treat sin. We think lightly of sin. Listen, nothing in the world is as evil as sin is. Or, say it the other way, everything in this world which is evil is sin. <laughs> nothing is as evil as sin, and nothing is evil except sin. The Bible has 1,189 chapters in it. Four of them don't deal with sin and sinners. Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21, 22, that's it. In a very real sense, the Bible is a comprehensive book about the comprehensiveness of human depravity. Sin is defined in various ways in the scripture. Judges 20, verse 16, describes sin as, a, as missing the mark. And that's the story of the left-handed uh, slingers from the tribe of Benjamin. They could hurl a rock and split a hair. That word is then used to describe sin. Sin is shooting at God's holiness and missing, failure to split the hair of God's holiness. Proverbs 19 verse 2 describes sin as a wandering off of God's path, that God has laid out a path for us to live in. Sin is wandering off of the path. 
The most common word in the Bible to describe sin is actually the word for rebellion. To rebel against God is described as sin and transgression. Sin can also mean to pass over, similar as the angel of death passed over the Israelites' houses with the blood on it. That same word is used for people that pass over God's law. And so when you take all those uses together, these are all Old Testament words, you get this idea of sin is a failure to hit exactly the mark of God's holiness. A wandering off of the way in which you're supposed to live, a transgressing, a breaking of God's law, or simply an ignoring of God's law. And that's where you begin to understand the category of sins of omission. You just ignore what you're supposed to do. When Moses returned from the mountain and he saw the Israelites worshiping the golden cows, he exclaimed to them, why are you transgressing Yahweh's command when you will not succeed? This is the human nature of sin. It's transgressing God's command, passing over his voice and his rules, and dooming yourself to a life of failure. Basically, at its core, sin is being willfully disobedient to God's voice. In the New Testament, Paul describes sin as taking pleasure in unrighteousness. That's 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 12. It's also used, the New Testament also uses words like wandering or straying, John's favorite image for sin is just the word that's translated lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is acting like God's laws and God's commands don't apply to you. Being willfully, as I said, disobedient to God's commands. In the same way that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy enough to be compared to the glory in the life to come, the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared to the evils of sin. No one in this world has ever suffered in a way that compares to the suffering that sin produces. That's because at its core, sin is a violation of the creature-creator distinction. God makes us, God bestows life in us, and then God gives us his word, gives us his voice, gives us his command, and sin is the disregarding of those things. Sin is the telling of God, who exactly do you think you are? Yes, you made me. Yes, you gave me my life. Yes, you gave me my breath. Yes, you gave me all things, but I don't care. I'm the one who's in charge. That's sin. Sin is the classic battle of the wills. The thy will be done versus the my will be done. (laughs) You know this as a parent, sometimes discipline, especially with younger kids, it is all about the battle of the wills. (laughs) You know, you've perhaps been in one of those battles with a younger child where you, you know, spank them 20 times it seems like in a, a half hour because they're going to key, they're going to say, no, my will is going to win, mom. And the mom says, oh, no, it's not. <laughs> Who's going to get tired first? Who knows? That's the battle with a little kid. That is you against the Lord. That's what sin is. The classic battle of my will will win, God. And the answer is no, it won't. Theologians call this concept total depravity. The idea that sin touches, taints, corrupts every element of your life. Every element. This is described in Genesis 6 verse 4. I believe maybe Genesis 6 verse 5. Where every thought of man's heart is only evil continually. That concept, every thought of man's heart, only evil continually. Think about all those exhaustive words. Every thought of your heart that's covering both affections, intellect and affections... Only evil, exclusively, continually, all the time. Comprehensive in the quantity, comprehensive in the quality, comprehensive in the duration of it. And you might think, how is that true? Don't I do some righteous things? Yeah, you might do some righteous things. 
but with unrighteous motives. Nothing we do this side of heaven is purely righteous. You in your most righteous prayer have sin mingled in. You in your most righteous action have impure motivations mingled in. And there's no way to dissect that, is there? You know, you do something righteous and you might say 90% of it is for, is for good motives. Maybe only 10% of it is for selfish bad motives. How do you know? I mean, it's like the, the murderer doing the autopsy on the victim. I mean, what kind of result do you think he's going to get? You look at yourself and you say, I examined my motives in that action and I've deduced that it was mostly a righteous action. I'm not going to take your word for it. Because the Bible says that every thought of man's heart is only evil continually. Total depravity doesn't mean that people are as sinful as they could be. Of course not. There's restraints built into the world. There's laws. You're not as sinful as you could be because you don't want to go to jail, which itself is a selfish motive, but we're thankful for that motive. There's good motives in the world too. You're not as sinful as you could be because you want to please the Lord. If you're a believer, you have his Holy Spirit that has sealed you, has given you a conviction and a love for Christ. And so you want to be pleasing to, to the Lord. And so you do do things out of love for the Lord. That's true. But even in that, you recognize that there are some mixed motives. There's some shadows of sin. And this, thus, sin touches everything that you do. It elevates self above God. Uh, Paul in Romans 1, 2, and 3 describes this basically as idol worship. When you exalt your will above the will of God like Adam and Eve did in the garden, you recognize that is idol worship. Sometimes it manifests itself in the actual worshiping of idols, and sometimes it's as simple as I think that I'm in charge. It's the worship of self. And because of that, sin touches and taints and tarnishes everything. The Puritan Ralph Venning writes, quote, Affliction is not so afflictive, death is not so deadly, the devil is not so devilish, and hell is not so hellish as sin is. And you can do that sentence in reverse. That sin is more hellish than hell. That sin is more devilish than the devil. That sin is more deadly than death. And that sin is more afflictive than affliction. This is one of the reasons in James chapter 1 that James exposes suffering as a sanctifying influence. Now, granted, not everybody who suffers is suffering because of their own sin, as an immediate cause of their own sin. There are what we would call innocent victims of suffering. Sometimes you suffer not because of your own sin, but because you live in a fallen world. I mean, every form of suffering is connected to sin, though, right? You grant that. Every possible form of suffering is the result of sin in the world. Maybe there's not a one-to-one -one correlation between your own sin and your own suffering. Maybe it's just that you're a victim of the fallen world. But often there is a one-to-one -one correlation. You think of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, who was afflicted with what we today would call a psychological disorder, lycanthropy. You know why he was suffering. Because God told him, because of your arrogance, I'm going, you exalted yourself, I'm going to afflict you with this disorder, and you will graze in the woods for seven years until he repented. That's the nature of suffering in this world. As I said, not everybody who suffers does so because of their own sin, but a lot of people who suffer do because of their own sin. Even if it's not because of your own sin, though, James 1 says you're suffering, and in your suffering it exposes your mixed motives. It exposes your wrong expectations. It exposes your sense of entitlement. Even when it's not a one-to-one -one correlation with your sin, even when you're suffering as an innocent victim, it still is used by the Lord to expose your own 
sinful understandings, your own sinful desires. That is why, listen carefully, that is why suffering produces sanctification because it exposes your sinful motives. It causes you to confess them. It causes you to work through them. Suffering, in that sense, sanctifies. Whereas sin does the opposite. Sin obscures your sinful motives. Sin feeds your sinful motives. So sin never sanctifies. It only afflicts. It only leads to more suffering. I'm concerned that we too often don't understand the pervasiveness of sin. You know, we think of sin as committing the big deals, you know, breaking the Ten Commandments kind of thing, and I don't murder, I don't commit adultery, so sin-wise, I'm doing pretty good in life. A person who thinks that has never really come to terms with the sinfulness of sin. A person who thinks that has never really come to terms with what James is saying in verse 17, that whoever knows the right thing to do but fails to do it, sins. That's what I mean by sin of omission. First thing to understand about the sin, sins of omission is that they're sins of information. They're sins of information. As I mentioned, sin is not just abstaining from bad things. It's also the lack of active pursuit of God's will. That's what sin is. A lack of actively pursuing God's will. Jesus says this, Matthew 12, verse 50, when his mother and brothers and sisters were outside trying to summon him, they thought he was out of his mind because of his preaching. You recall this? And the crowd says, your mother is here and your family's here. Go with them. And Jesus asked this question, who is my mother? Who are my brothers and sisters? I tell you, whoever does the will of my father, they are my brother and sister. Jesus there connects the doing of God's will with being united to him in Christ. This is what the context is in James 4. James says, come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city, do this and do that. You don't know what the will of the Lord is. Don't say that. Instead, you're boasting in your arrogance. That's the sin of ignoring providence. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this and we'll do that. In other words, you ought to submit your plans in life to God and his will. And whoever knows the will of God but doesn't do it is sinning. Jesus defines being in union with him, being his brother and sister, as doing the will of our Father in heaven. And I mentioned this last week, I don't want to repeat too much of this, but in our world, we are so sidetracked by the will of the God as in decision making. You know, is it God's will for me to live in this city or that city? To, for me to take this job or that job? For me to go to this school or that school? Or the single person says, is it God's will for me to marry this person or that person? What if I choose wrong? And we think of God's will in those terms. That's not generally how the Bible describes God's will, though. The Bible describes God's will as things that are clear to you. This is the will of the Lord, your sanctification, the scripture says. God's will for you, Ephesians 5, 17. Do not be foolish. Instead, understand what the will of the Lord is, your sanctification. That you don't be drunk with wine. Instead, you be filled with the Spirit. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. This is the will of the Lord, that none should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. Jesus, at the end of his ministry, says this is the will of God, that people would place their faith in his Son. First Thessalonians 4, verse 3, this is the will of the Lord, your sexual purity, that each of you know how to acquire your own wife in dignity and honor, not in passionate lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. Second Thessalonians 2, 12, this is the will of the Lord, your sanctification. In other words, the will of the Lord is evident. 
You should be sanctified. You should be submissive to Christ. You should be sexually pure. You should be serving in the church. Those are all things that are clear and evident in the Bible as God's will for your life. And if you know that and you don't do it, it is sin. That's James's point. We're so easy to say, I'm not having an affair. I'm not committing adultery. Therefore, I'm not sinning in that area. The Bible presents sin from the other direction, though. This is the will of the Lord, your purity. This is the will of the Lord that you are taking every thought captive for Christ. And this is the battle of information that you understand in your mind what God's will is. You can do that and if you don't act on it, it is sin for you. I want to try to present this from as many angles as possible to help you because this can become somewhat of an abstract con. con- concept because sin of omission is by definition a sin that you're not doing in the, in the actual action sense. So it can be hard to understand. But let me put it this way. The greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Right? Does it not then follow that the greatest sin is failure to do that? That the greatest sin you can do, the biggest sin you can do is failure to love the Lord your God with the totality of, in this instance, your mind. That's not a sin of action right there. That's a sin of failure. It's a sin of omission. It's a sin, it's a big sin that you're committing all the time. That's what's meant by total depravity. You know the will of God. You're just not doing it. You're just not doing it. Jesus told the story in Luke chapter 12. Uh, he told the parable, and one of the funnier questions is the disciples were listening to his, his parable, the parable of the leaven and the Pharisees and the parable of the rich fool. And at the end of it, they ask him a really funny question. They say, are you telling this parable against us? I think that's funny. <laughs> Jesus, it seems like you're rebuking us. And Jesus then tells them this. The story of the, the servants whose master goes away and puts him in charge of the house. He comes back. He's going to find some of his servants slacking off, not doing what they're supposed to do. And if he comes back and finds them awake, he'll reward them. If he comes back and finds them sleeping, they'll be, they'll be beaten. Peter says, of course Peter, obviously Peter, Lord, are you telling this parable against us? And Jesus says to them, who then is the faithful and wise manager? And what will he do when he comes back? I tell you this, Luke 12, 47, the servant who comes back who knew his master's will but didn't do it will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know his master's will and still did what deserved a beating, he'll only receive a light beating. It's one of those devotionals that doesn't make it in the Jesus Storybook Bible, you know, (laughs) where Jesus says some of you are going to receive severe beatings, others just light beatings. The difference between the severe beatings and the light beatings is the person who knew the will of God gets the severe beating. The one who knew what God wanted him to do will be punished more severely for his inaction. That's what I mean is this is a sin of information. It's a sin that's rooted in what you know in your head. In this sense, the less you know, the better you are. Because when you know what God's will is, when you know his will is your holiness, your sanctification, when you know that... His will is for you to be advancing the gospel in the world, for you to be loving him and loving your neighbor with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Then not doing things 
is a serious sin. A serious sin. And the bottom line with all this is that you're worse than you thought. <laughs> sin affects more of your life than you give it credit for. You are way more sinful than you think. The new believer has a hard time with this point. The person who's new to faith in Christ, you know, they're, they're, they're dealing with what we call the big sins, right? They're figuring out drunkenness is bad. Okay, I'm a Christian, I need to stop getting drunk. Okay? I repent for my sin. Figure out I'm a Christian, I need to stop cussing. It's wrong, it's sinful. It's the will of the Lord that I don't let impure speech come out of my mouth. So they're putting that to death and they're growing in righteousness. The new Christian is like, oh, you know, I need to stop yelling at my wife and love my family like Christ loved the church. I know I'm going to fail, but I trust him. Those are the kind of things that the, the new believers are working through. But now you've been a Christian 10, 15, 20 years. You're growing in your maturity in Christ. Somebody asks you, what sins are you dealing with right now? How are you working through sin in your life? Anyway, you're not getting drunk. You're not cussing at people. You're not yelling at your wife. I mean, you worked through that thing. You worked through that years ago. So what are you dealing with now? And so it's so easy to say, oh, I, well, I don't know, you know. I'm reading the Bible more. That's the answer we go back to. I'm trying to read the Bible more. I'm trying to pray more. I'm trying to evangelize more. Those kind of answers are showing a shallowness in your heart when it comes to sin. The truth is, what kind of sins are you working through right now? This category of sins. Sins of omission. You're not doing. You're not loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You're failing there. This is where my battle with sin is, in this category right here, where I come face to face with the reality that I am not as active in my sanctification as I should be. I'm not as aggressive in my pursuit of godliness as I should be. How aggressive should I be? Well, all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's a pretty exhaustive phrase. This is where the battle for holiness is. And it stays in your heart there the rest of your life until glory. So, Understanding sins of omission. First, there's sins of information. Second, obedience begins with the affections. Obedience begins with the affections. It's an interesting concept in this verse. What is the person in verse 17, the whoever in verse 17, what is he missing? Why is he sinning? Is it because he doesn't know what he's supposed to do? And the answer is no. <laughs> He knows exactly what he's supposed to do. His problem is not a lack of information. He understands it's gotten to his head. It has not gotten to his heart. So why not? Think about who James is writing to. Why are there people in church that hear the word of God preached, that know the will of God in his word, but don't do it? What's missing there? And it's a roadblock. There's a roadblock between the head and the heart. That's where the conflict is. Again, it's not that, well, I'm not talking about the person in the world out there who's just going about his life right now, driving by on Braddock out there. He doesn't know what God's will in his life is in the, in the broad sense. You know, he, his conscience convicts him of sin, of course, but he doesn't know the details of God's will for his life. He's in the light beating category. <laughs> He's trucking along, along with his life. I'm talking about people in the church who are here that hear the word of God. They know the word of God is their sanctification. They know the word of God is their conformity to the image of Christ, but they don't want to do it. It's all about the affections of the heart. Their ears are willing enough to hear. Their heart is not willing enough to believe. 
They have the hands of their heart put up with skepticism, keeping the truth away. They listen to the preaching with, with a skeptical ear. Almost like this is what God says is true, now let's see him prove it kind of attitude. I don't need to obey that. What, is, what does the Bible have over my life? I'm the one that decides which truths apply to me and which truths don't. And frankly, right now, I'm not that convinced. That's the kind of thinking that goes on in that kind of heart. It's a form of arrogance where they're exalted on the judgment seat over God's word. It's a roadblock between the head and the heart. This is why the scripture, Paul commands you, 2 Corinthians, to take your thoughts captive for Christ. To go to war against your thoughts and capture them. You're not capturing them to imprison them in your mind. You're transferring them from your mind down to your heart. You're going to war. There's things in your mind that are true and there are things in your mind that are untrue. You're going to war against the untruths and you're assassinating them. You're going to war with the truths and you're capturing them and bringing them down to your heart. This is the means of grace in the church. This is why we sing. This is why there's fellowship. This is why there's preaching of the word every Sunday. This is why you... you, (laughs) You're cut off from the means of grace if you call yourself a Christian and you don't go to church because this will happen to you. The truth won't go from your head to your heart. This is why preaching is what we do at church. It's the war to persuade you with the beauty of Christ to move the truth from your head down to your heart. This is why we sing as a congregation. It's the war to take those truths that you believe in your mind and get them to be loved in your heart because that will produce you doing the will of God. So every song you sing is a war for your affection. Every sermon you hear, every sermon I preach is designed to cause you to love the truths that you know in the Bible and to transfer you from being the skeptical person of, I just don't know. I don't quite buy that. I know Jesus says it, but it's not for me. That produces James 5.17. I know what God's will is. I just don't want to do it. 4.17. This is the difference between the non-Christian and how the, how the Christian and the non-Christian hear the sermons. How they sing. Are your defenses up? Or are you saying, come on truth, do your worst. I'm not going to succumb. Or do you lower the drawbridge to your heart? And you say, word of God, fill me because I want to obey The believer wants to embrace what the Bible says. The skeptic does not. And when you do not embrace it, you become the person who knows the right thing to do, but fail to do it. Well, obedience begins in the affections. And then finally, Jesus' righteousness is seen in his actions. Jesus becomes our model here. And his righteousness is seen in his actions. So I'm moving you here from head, heart, hands. Head, information. If you just end there, you're committing sins of omission. You've got to transfer your information to your heart where you love it. And now we've got a model here for what it means to obey it, namely in the person of Christ. So moving from head to heart to hands, the hands here modeled by Jesus. How did Jesus obey the will of God? Did he, and you know the answer obviously to James 4, 17, did Jesus ever fail to do the will of God? And the answer is no. He always did what God wanted him to do. Earlier I said we tend to think of sin in the category of, you know, doing bad things rather than in the category of omission, failure to do right things. The same dynamic is true with how we view Jesus. We all know that Jesus was sinless. But sometimes we're tempted to think that just means 
he didn't do the bad stuff. Like he never committed adultery or, or whatever. Well, that's true. He didn't do the bad stuff. That's not sufficient. <laughs> that's not comprehensive enough. Jesus' sinlessness is not just in what he abstained from doing. It's in what he did, or theologians call this the active righteousness of Christ. Not just the passive righteousness, not just he was passive by not doing things, but he demonstrated an active righteousness by actually doing what God wanted him to do. He didn't just merely abstain from evil, he actively demonstrated his righteousness through all of his deeds. You know this because Matthew seven twenty one, Jesus says, not everyone will enter heaven but only those who do the will of my Father. Now he's speaking this about himself, of course. He's the consummate wise person. So when he says the only people who can, are worthy enough to ascend to heaven are those who do the will of God, he's not just saying how impossible it is for you to go to heaven, but he's saying how fit he is for it because he will only be doing the will of God. Just like you can't see God's beauty and his holiness and what he abstains from doing, the only way to understand God's beauty and his holiness is to see his action. The same is true with Christ. If holiness was just not doing sins, a rock would be very holy, wouldn't it? I mean, the rock does not commit adultery. The rock does not say impure things or have impure motives. The rock is just, it's just sitting there. Is that the picture of godliness? No. Jesus is more than the rock. <laughs> he does righteous deeds all the time. John, 8 verse, or John 6 verse 38, Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. Notice that Jesus ties his incarnation to the acting on the, the will of the Father. I hope you understand this, that, that the Son of God and the, the Father God share one will. They don't have two different wills. Their wills aren't in opposition. The Son of the eternal Son of God is his will is united with the will of the Father. They act in unison. They're always doing the same thing. At his incarnation, Jesus takes on a second nature, a human nature. He takes on a second will, a human will. And he demonstrates over and over again that his human will is always submissive to the will of his Father. He only does what the Father wants him to do. James 5 verse 19, or John 5 verse 19. Jesus says, I assure you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own. Is there anything God can't do? Anything apart from the will of the Trinity? That's the answer. Jesus says, I cannot do anything except what the Father wills me to do. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does these things in the same way. What an outrageous statement. Whatever the Father does, the Son only does those things in the same way as the Father. This is why at the end of his ministry, Jesus can declare, all that I've learned from the Father, I've demonstrated to you. Through word and through deed, he's shown us what the Father has willed for him to do. Jesus kept busy always doing the Father's will. Now, because of his humanity, he did rest. He did have fellowship with his friends. He did go to sleep. He did take time alone in isolation to pray. It was a demonstration of his human nature and the limitations of humanity. But even in that, he was always doing his father's will. That was his father's will for him in his incarnation, was to take time to rest, was to take time to fellowship, was to take time to pray. Again, one more perspective on this. Was there a good deed that the father wanted Jesus to do that he failed to do? No. 
He did everything the Father. He drove illness out of Palestine in his incarnation. He did everything the Father wanted him to do. Perfectly. He failed to do nothing. That's our example of godliness. That's our intercessor. That's our model. How does this connect to us? Ephesians 2 verse 10. That the Father has planned out good deeds for us to walk in from before time. God has set aside in his will things for us to do. And righteousness is doing them. The Christian life is a life of activity. Just like God. God is pure action, pure light, pure life. We are to be action as well. God saves us to use us. There should be no room in the church for spectator Christianity. You know what I mean by that. Coming and watching and leaving and not doing. Just observing, ranking the sermon, ranking the song, critiquing the spelling on the PowerPoint. (laughs) That's not doing something. God saves you to do things for him. To live the life of light in the world. He's chosen things and righteousness for us to do, to walk in. Now, we don't do things to earn acceptance from God. That's works righteousness. That's false. We don't earn our approval from God by doing things. We repent of that, actually. We repent of it because we know because of our sin and depravity, we're unable to do that. We can't lead the perfect enough life to earn heaven. It's given to us as a gift through faith in Christ. So we come to faith in Christ. We're now saved by believing that his sin atones, or his death atones for our sin, that his resurrection unites us with him for eternal life. That's the entrance way here to the Christian life. But now being united with Christ, we don't rest and watch. We live with energy. We know that the the night is at hand. We want to do the deeds of light as long as the light is in the world. We want to bring the gospel into the world. We want to be busy about the deeds that God wants us to do. Anything else, anything, any life of Christian spectatorness, any life of just watching, any life of just observing is violating James 4.17. It's knowing the will of God and not doing it. And that's a life of sin. It's a boring life also. (laughs) But it's a life of sin. God has saved us to use us. And I pray that as you walk out into the world this week, you would be used by the Lord. Lord, we're grateful that you, who are pure life, pure light, pure love, that you have shared your light with us. You've shared your life with us. You've shared your love with us. So Lord, we pray now that you would use us this week as we go into the world to bring your light to the world. Tell others about the life you give. Lord, we don't want to be observers to our short time on earth. We want to be used by you. We want to see what we can do for your glory this week. Lord, we do beg you that you would see fit to use us. We know that we have no qualification or gifting on our own. Everything we have is a gift from you. It's something we've received from you through your mercy and your grace. We pray that you would find it sufficient enough for us to be used by you this week. We're grateful that we have forgiveness of sins, that we don't have to worry about our sins 
disqualifying us from sharing eternal life with you, that you have forgiven us of our sins. Because of that freedom, we know who the Son sets free is free indeed. Because of the freedom we have through our forgiveness, we pray that we would run the race with liberty, we'd run, run the race with our burden lifted, we would run the race, that we would exert ourselves this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.